Welcome to season four of Scrub Chat, a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Kim Farina, a veterinarian, a writer. I've worked in the animal healthcare industry, and prior to that, I was an MTV journalist and a radio personality. So yes, my career has taken me in lots of different directions. In each episode of Scrub Chat, I sit down and chat with a veterinarian or technician so they can share their own directions and journeys, what's worked, what hasn't, and how they've made it all fit. Thank you for joining me as we explore veterinary medicine combined with all the other aspects of our lives. One last thing, thank you Zoetis. Zoetis has generously created these podcasts to help support this incredible profession. Today we get to chat with Alyssa Mages, a certified veterinary technician who has an amazing journey to share with us. She is co-founder and chief visionary officer, yes I said visionary, not veterinary, of a company called Empowering Veterinary Teams. I can't wait to hear about this. What is Empowering Veterinary Teams about? Hi Kim, thank you so much for having me on Scrub Chat. I'm so excited to be here. Um, Empowering Veterinary Teams is a joint vision uh, between myself and my business partner and dearest friend, Caitlin Keat, um, recognizing throughout multiple industries, but in particularly my own, as she's not in the vet world, and we'll get to that momentarily, um, that there is a lack of ownership of one's own awesome. And always having that statement of, I'm just fill in the blank. And I, I, that, that breaks my heart when I hear anyone say that. I'm just a vet tech. I'm just an assistant. I'm just a CSR. To me, no one is just anything. We all bring such an intrinsic greatness to our teams. And I see that in people. And I wanted to help them see that in themselves. Um, I've been in veterinary medicine for 16 years. So that classic story of, I love animals, um, kennel tech assistant all the way up through into a leadership role most recently. And just recognizing that there's always something more we can do. And also balancing that home life. I have two small humans uh, that I wanted to be more in touch with and help them find their awesome. And I can't do that when I'm in the OR or the ER. So how can I do both? You start your own thing and here we go. And Caitlin is in a similar uh, venue with her two small humans as well. Uh, So we wanted to have a joint venture that could speak to literally changing the world. Yeah. So, so you were, you know, you're in the field or, or you're in the profession for 16 years and then you're, and then at some point you looked at the current landscape that you were, you know, that you were seeing around you. And did you just go, we need to fix this. Partially, yes. Um, honestly, I was in a position where I'd started making that change microcosmically. And it was really encouraging, but it could only go so far. And just given all the limitations within those four walls and protocols and things, and you said it right, Chief Visionary Officer, I have a vision and it's not a little one. <laughs> um, and I couldn't keep that in one place. I wanted to share it with so many others, Um, identifying learning styles and communication styles and uh, creating didactic materials to, you know, connect with all of those. You know, I'm a visual read, write, kinesthetic person. Someone else is auditory and kinesthetic. I am an extrovert extremely. There's a ton of introverts in our world. Uh, We work with fear-free. Guess what? That's how humans communicate too. So linking that all together 
and creating uh, modalities to address these things, I was seeing firsthand and wanting to take it bigger and beyond. Um, so that was part of that per- journey. And then uh, personally, I, I have had six knee surgeries. So in our profession, it's our knees or our back. And my knees had had to give. Um, I can't do the 10 to 12 hour shifts on my feet anymore. I just physically can't do it. So, um, and yes, the general landscape does, does need to change. Instead of giving your practice managers and medical directors this packet of materials and then them giving it to their teams like this is how you're going to learn things all right figure it out get thrown to the wolves that that doesn't work um it's outdated and it's unfair and it sets everyone up to lose um the practice in general and the industry and most primary importance to me was our patients if we're not clinically trained and prepared if we are not individually coached and trained because they're not the same things then our patients ultimately suffer and no one wants that So that was really kind of my pivotal point was physically, I can't do this. Mentally, there is so much more I could do and we need to change. And universally, there's been a lot of negativity out there. And to be a part of a positive impetus for change, yes, let's do this. Yeah, that's awesome. As a certified veterinary technician Mm -hmm. and an entrepreneur, you know, we could say like, well, how these identities, they each have their own little boxes, you know, and so how do they come together in one person? Because initially you might say these are so, you know, these are so different, but you're saying no. Now, what do we always manage to do, especially on the ER floor? MacGyver the situation, right? So if you need to figure out how to connect, a, you know, an anesthesia circuit so a patient can get constant delivery, but you don't have hands, what do you do? Well, you poke a hole in a glove box, shove the tubes in, and you've got that problem solved. So entrepreneurs, same kind of thing. Well, I see a niche. I need to figure out how to get there. So you create it. So to me, they're not divergent at all. They're convergent. Um, I've had that, you know, I have to figure out how to make this work. It's just me and two other people on an overnight shift and one doctor. Oh, okay. We've got a GDV and a blocked cat. And how are we going to make this happen? You make a plan and you attack it. And that's kind of how you approach a new business model as well. Like, how are we going to make this work? Well, we identify the niche, we identify the needs, map out a plan, and you make it work. So it's really taking those attributes of both um, career paths and, and marrying the two and taking the scientific and analytical mindset of a veterinary professional, as well as the business acumen, which I'm learning constantly. And I think that's part of it too, is that as a CVT, as you know, a marine biologist historically, we always want to know the whys. We want to learn. We want to know what works. So I'm, I'm learning how to do you know, SEO and my, I just did my trademarking things and my LLCing and, oh, business taxes, that's, that's a thing. You know, so it's a constant evolution in, in my learning process, which is fantastic. So different, yes, but exciting, Yes. And absolutely similar. Yeah. You mentioned marine biology and I had done research on you. Uh And let's talk about your early career. You graduated from the University of Rhode Island a while ago with a bachelor's in marine biology. Mm -hmm. How did that come about? Uh, Honestly, uh, a long time ago, even before that, um, I was four and went on my first whale watch um, out of Provincetown in Cape Cod with my grandparents and my parents. 
And I was on the prow of the ship. I will never forget this day. The waves, it was just hitting, bashing. And my grandfather was like, are you sh- are you sure you're okay out here? And my mom is, and dad were in the, the cabin puking. <laughs> and I was like, yes. And then a male breached in front of us. And a mother and her calf swam up beside me. And I looked over and I remember seeing that eyeball. I was like, I looked at my gramps and I said, "That I'm going to swim with them someday. And I did. Um, I just kept with it. They, my, and my parents are just incredible. Um, they have always been a huge proponent for, you know, giving me these opportunities and educational moments of learning what I love to do and exposing me to those kinds of things. So no, I didn't get to go to Disney until I was 22 and paid my own way, but I got to see humpback whales breaching, you know? So, um, Went to URI and met my lifetime crew of people and learned from an incredible mentor there and got my job down in the Keys, teaching marine biology and saving some pilot whales and doing sharks and turtle research. And it was pretty much the dream come true. But interesting, you attain your veterinary technology degree from Manor College in Pennsylvania. And then you were started working at Metropolitan Veterinary Associates, also in Pennsylvania. Yeah. So I'm trying to connect the dots. <laughs> Help me it's out. Tricky, right? Um, so I grew up moving a lot as a kid. My dad is um, or was, he just retired last year um, in the ministry. So I was born in Connecticut. We moved all around Pennsylvania uh, throughout my childhood, but my aunt had gone to University of Rhode Island and we had always gone up to Cape Cod. So we'd driven through there since I was a little, little nugget and it just was full circle to go back to New England. And then I got the job offer in the Keys and went down there, met my husband even when I wasn't looking. And he's like, hey, I'm going out to graduate school in Vancouver, British Columbia. I was like, oh, funny story. My aunt and uncle and cousins live out there. So if you're going and this thing works out, I should come. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we actually, we got engaged fairly quickly within five months and out we went in the summer of 2004 after um, I moved back home to, my parents were still outside of Philadelphia at this point. So Pennsylvania is home. Um, moved out to there and my husband's from Kansas. So it's just this funny little, we shouldn't have met, but we did. Um, so we moved out to Vancouver and I had started volunteering at the vet clinic that I took our cats to when I was home in spring of 2004. So when we moved out to Vancouver, I got a job with the local Island vet and they did everything, you know, large animal. It was a mixed practice. And I really, it was an eye opener. Like your first anal gland abscess, that's when you learn to keep your mouth shut when you're looking at things. Yep. That was a good there a story there. Oh boy. Um, Tell us a story. If there's uh, a story. story. Yes. So I was what? 22. Really like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I mean, purulence. Now I know that that's what it's called, but at the time pus was just cool. It's gross. It's cool. So I'm like really in there looking at the vet at what she's doing, seeing how she's separating, dissecting the tissues, proving back. She's like, now this is really important that you, and before she could say, keep your mouth shut, I was like, whoa, and oh, inst- instant emetic is what that is. Instant emetic. Um, and no it, way. Oh, you- way. It happened. Um, I can give you her contact info. She will verify the story. Oh, <laughs> we'll good friends to this wow. Um, but it kept me, I was like, okay, well, if I can handle that, you know, nothing else is really going to be a big deal. 
So um, when we moved into the city off of the island, I started working at a referral practice there and was quickly up the, the tier into surgery where I loved it. Uh, I was a scrub nurse with the ortho and soft tissue team. And I was the hip replacements go-to gal, that surgeon, uh, Dr. Terry Schiller, who's my mentor. Shout out to Terry. She's incredible. Um, I got into vet school while I was out there. So that was the original plan was, yes, I'm going to combine marine biology and veterinary medicine. That's why I went into it. I didn't have any veterinary experience. So I found out marine biology is incredible, but it's not enough. I'm learning about them and that's fantastic, but I helped take off, you know, some malignant melanomas from some hawksbill turtles. Well, yeah, I want to save them all. So I need to go to school to do this. Um, so she helped me get in and then we found out we were expecting our, our first child, our daughter. And I was like, Ooh, and she said, you could do it. You could do both, but you only get one chance with, with that next member of your family you'll come back to veterinary medicine. This is always going to be here. You're meant to do this in some capacity, but you only get one chance. Don't mess it up. She was right. And it was really hard. You know, it was that, that like, and it, clearly as I'm talking about it, you can see that it's like, oh, it's still kind of there. Uh, but I've come to terms with it because EVT would not have happened if Claire didn't happen. And I was on a path of just so focused and driven that I was missing things. And I will tell her this until she really hears me that my daughter literally saved my life. She really made me refocus and get back into what was important. So fast forward, Canada was like, all right, your visa's done. Get out. <laughs> um, we headed back to the States and I had interviewed for a position in, at the University of Florida. It, it didn't come to fruition. So we moved in with my folks, which is so encouraging. You know, once you've moved out and lived on your own, you're like, great. They're wonderful. And it, it was, it couldn't have been a better situation. Um, and then I got fortunately able to veterinary medicine. We can work anywhere, right? No matter where you go, they always need somebody and got hooked into a good practice and met um, another dear friend of mine now. And she's like, I'm opening my own practice. Do you want to come work with me? And I was like, yeah, this would be great. So she ran her general practice like an ER. So that's just how our brain works. If you're prepared for an emergency, you can handle fleas and ticks and vaccines and spays and new, all that good stuff. So um, really enjoyed that. And then was finishing my degree at uh, Manor at the same time. So commuting back and forth, I had a three-year-old doing all that fun stuff, you know, living the dream and realized that general practice, as much fun as it was, there's more out there. So right about that time, we found out we were expecting number two. So then we're like, all right, we've been living in South Philly for a while. And we moved out to the suburbs and I started at Metropolitan in 2012. And then was an emergency for a little over a year, moved into anesthesia, became a trainer in that department. I love anesthesia, mostly because it's a steady state of emergency. So it clearly emergency. Once in, You can take the girl out of emergency, but not the other way around. And then in oncology for a, a while until my other knee broke. So I, they are just a mess. And then I did pharmaceutical sales, didn't fit, but I learned a lot. You know, I learned what I was good at and what I wasn't. And then there was a position that opened back up at Metropolitan as a CSR, which I thought I knew what those folks did until I actually sat in that chair. Wow, that's a hard job. And I, I was glad that they then created a position while I was there for education and development. And I had been a professor at Manor at my alma mater in dentistry and emergency. So I could combine teaching and being a nurse. I was in heaven. 
You know, I can teach people. I can, I can still poke things like, oh, it's a lumen. My turn, my turn. Um, and building all of these fun things. And just, I love that aha moment for myself, selfishly. But to see somebody get that ding, it's like, yes, they got it. Um, it was just awesome. But we got busy. We hired almost 80 people in three years. And to create an onboarding, orientation, continuing development, assessment, evaluation, and then the pandemic hits. It kind of, it had to stop. You know, the focus had to be on keeping the the, the team safe. And my gosh, did Metro do a great job with that. Um, and again, it wasn't anything against doing and working with them. I became who I am because of that practice. I will credit them for that forever. Um, and some lasting friendships, absolutely. It was just time to take it elsewhere and onward and take what I'd learned and share it. So that was not a long story short. That was just a long story long. And that's, an, Perfect. that's where I'm at. So Perfect. we launched EVT in October of 2019. And I stayed on at Metropolitan until June of this year. So it's been quite a journey. But yeah, a great one. I'd say so. And I feel like... Alyssa, just in the short time we, we've been chatting, I feel like anyone could say to you, hey, let's do this. And you're like, sure, I try it. Sure, why not? Why you not? Know, so, um, why not? And, and so yeah. I, I'm curious about risk because I feel like what we're talking about is like moving beyond the mechanics and taking ideas and running them with them. And it's like an opportunity comes and you go, why not? Okay. Why are you not afraid to take risks? Oh, that's a, Kim, that's a fabulous question. It's not that I'm not afraid um, because that fear is real. Um, it's what I choose to do with it. And I have in the past been like paralyzed. Like, I can't do that. And I didn't go anywhere. I didn't learn anything. So why not? What's the worst that could happen? is really where I've come to. And it's like, all right. So if I reach out to a, a friend in in the industry about EVT, what's the worst thing they could do? Not get back to me or say no. But what if they don't? And that, you know, cliches are what they are because they work, they, they come true more often than not. You know, the only risks in life you regret are the ones you didn't take. Right. And do I have a handful of regrets? Of course, I'm human, but not that many. And I'm fortunate with that. And I know that um, I'm surrounded by a, a, not even a village anymore at this point. I feel like it's a whole <laughs> multiple countries of support, which is phenomenal. Yeah. So that's part of it too, why I'm not afraid to take risks. I have people. Um, my husband, Paul is my rock. And he's like, you know what? Yeah, it's scary, but we'll get through this because together, we're an unbeatable team. Yeah, we are. And I've got best friends. I'm an only child, so I've gotten to pick my sisters and brothers. Woohoo! Um, but I have in-laws too that are that are my brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews. And they're like, "Do it! You can totally do this!" Like, so you have all those people in your corner that are constantly like, "You got this!" Like, what risk? I know it's there, um, and I'm very cognizant of the you know the instability and financial limitations and things that you have to be because adulting hashtag adulting. Uh, but I really feel like if I didn't do this, 
if I didn't take that first leap, I wouldn't know what it feels like to jump out of a plane and do a backflip. I wouldn't know what the waters in the seven sacred pools in Maui taste like because I didn't jump off the cliff. And I would miss that. So I'm going to I'm gonna take that jump. I'm going to take that risk and know that there's people waiting for me at the bottom. You see a need. Mm. And although it's risky, you're figuring out how to make it better. But it's still scary. So really what you're saying is, yes, the fear is still there. But it's like everything else around you, your support, the belief, the passion gets you through the fear. Yes. yes. I, I want people to have that sense of empowerment. That's why we named it Empowering Veterinary Teams. Because when you own that awesomeness, the fear may be there, but it doesn't own you. You own it and you can channel it into different ways. You know, I have also learned too, if I don't know something, I'm going to tell you that and find someone who does, or we're going to figure it out together. And I think that's part of it too, is that you have to be willing to also admit what you don't have and find those people that have it and tuck in with them and say, hey, you and I can do this together and it won't be as scary because we've got each other. I don't know this, but I know that, that, and you don't know that, but you know this. So let's combine it and get it out there together. I think there's another aspect of this chat that we have to keep circling back to, which is a veterinary technician or a veterinarian is not simply defined by what we think those roles should be. It You see, it like we have in our heads what, what we think they should be or are, but you're saying no. No. Because no. You, what we're saying too is that it's like you have said, there's lots of things I don't know and you go find the answer. So as a, as a veterinarian or as a veterinary technician, we don't know things, but we can go beyond. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love that you brought that back into it, Kim, because there's so many things. How do you, the question of where do you see yourself in five years and how do you, how do you define yourself? And we all, and most of us, because again, you know, the industry is primarily women are define ourselves based upon our roles. Why? When we define those roles, right? So there's a, you know, so many great podcasts as well as yours to follow. I, I love Brene Brown's and a bunch of others that are out there, but there's something that really resonated with me and I'm trying to remember where I saw it. Ah, um, I think it was on LinkedIn, the female lead, but don't apologize for your emotions. You know, that's, those are real. Don't apologize for being strong. Don't let go of who you are to be what they want you to be. And I'm paraphrasing and totally got it wrong, but essentially how I answer that question who are you going to be in five years? Well, me. Mm -hmm. Hopefully I'm more evolved and enlightened and more patient. Dear goodness sakes, please give me more patience. Um, me. But I am a wife. I am a mother. All of those things. But Alyssa is passionate and compassionate. I'm intelligent. I'm strong. I'm kind of crazy but you have to be to be in this industry. Um, I, I, not like the, hey, I need to be in a rubber room, but like <laughs> outside of the box. Um, creative, I'm athletic, or I try to be, except when I fall. I'm, you know, all of those things are about who we are, but I don't fit into a box. And 
I'm not going to let anyone do that anymore. And I think veterinary medicine, any industry does that. Like, well, to succeed in this, you have to do this. And this is the way we've always done it. Well, just because you always have doesn't mean you should. That would be like if we kept giving buprenorphine to everything for analgesia. Doesn't work. (laughs) So we can't approach any aspect of veterinary medicine in the same way. It just, it doesn't work. I can't, you know, talk to you and give you lecture notes if that's not how you're going to absorb the material. I have to figure out how this is going to make sense to you so you can succeed. Because ultimately, each of our individual successes go into that greater good, right? So the recognition and the application of your skills to help one another is really what, what we're looking to do here. So if you define yourself based upon societal norms, industry norms, et cetera, then you're doing yourself a disservice, but also your industry. Mm-hmm. So, and of course the primary one is you because we can't do this without everybody, right? You know, doctors can't do it without techs. Techs can't do it without assistance. None of us can do it without our CSRs, our facility teams that keep the place clean and running, our operations, our management, Everybody within a practice has an integral role to play and to recognize that and what they bring to the table is crucial. And to have those conversations, and we all know that it happens, the door shuts between the business office and the and the treatment room and understanding leaves as well. I'm guilty of that. I'm human. But take a minute and be like, hey, why aren't they answering the phone? Why I'm paging them about this client that needs to talk to them. Well, let's look at the triage board. There's 72 things that are here. And I've told these guys every time and again that the email can't say this. Well, it's Monday morning. How many phone calls are they dealing with here? And that's hard to do. I mean, when you're in the middle of an ER slam or you're on the other end of a phone of an irate client thinking about your other teammates, that's not going to be your first thought. But it can be once you start to change that conversation. So that then comes from that whole training approach. You have to identify how people learn and how people teach and create a program that puts those two in a very synergistic methodology. Because if you don't, you've shot yourself in all four paws and that doesn't work so well. No, absolutely not. Let's go back to the Monday morning you just described. Uh Because what if one of our listeners is just downright weary, a weary technician? That's not good. Now, where do we start? Like, what, what's your advice on how they would turn it around? I'd have to get to know them, you know, because what works for me is not necessarily going to work for Sarah or for Travis or anyone else in practice. So I'd need to know a little bit about where they're coming from. Or is it like it's the same thing over and over? Was it a jam-packed, busy day? Was it an emotionally draining day? What was it? Let's talk about how you're breathing. How are you getting in and out? How are you putting one foot in front of the other? So the wellness aspect, the self-care, the self-awareness is a huge part of that. Am I cognizant of it? Do I have a little bit of training in it? Yes. Is that my wheelhouse? No. Um, So I would refer to one of our working partners that does that specifically, that coaching. And then bring it back into how can we help from a job perspective? 
You know, what clinically is not working? Is it the patient to caregiver ratio? Is it, hey, I have to, I'm the only senior nurse on the floor and I had five cases and I was training someone? What equipment are we dealing with here? What's going on at home? What's going on at work? Was there drama? All of those things, you have to kind of know the whole, not kind of, you need to know the whole picture and that individual. And that's where knowing, you know, with that onboarding process and figuring out your team members, and even if it's, you know, something that you're implementing with existing team members, communication styles, emotional intelligence, learning styles, they all come back into play with one another. So you can have these mindful conversations and practice that active listening so they know they've been heard. Because you can listen to someone, but did you actually hear what they were saying? And it's not necessarily the verbal, right? It's, are we sitting together? Are you talking with your hands? Are you closed off? Is your chin down? Are your shoulders up? Are you avoiding eye contact? Are you quiet? Are you withdrawn? I can read a whole lot from that and then have a whole different approach to how we talk about these things. So that comes back around to what would I say to that person? Be like, tell me what happened. How can we figure this out to get you from this place to a place of moving on with? Because you don't get over stuff. I love that. I'll get over it. Suck it up, princess. Really? Because that's helpful. Um, You know, think about your own personal like grief experiences. You know, I lost my grandparents 15 years ago. Doesn't mean I don't miss them every once in a while. You know, I never got over that they died. I got on with it. If you've had a day where there's been multiple euthanasias, you don't get over that. You take a minute, feel it, address it as much as you can, and don't dwell. And then you get on with it. It's a very different when you kind of change that conversation, it changes how you approach it. And uh, you're still tired. And yes, you're weary, but it gives you a little bit of a, okay. And also talking with each other and having support groups on the site, like, hey, we've, we're all, we're in this together. You're not alone is huge. So uh, having that type of situation in practice is extremely beneficial. And again, hearing people where they're at and meeting them there and working on it together. Yeah. And I love how you made the distinction, get over it is very, very different. I agree. Then get on with it. I think because get over it as you're, as we're just talking about it is like, dismiss it, you know, get on with it is like, okay, it still could be part of you, but you, you move ahead. Correct. Correct. And it's getting those tools and it's a life learning experience, right? You know, I'm definitely not at the same level of acceptance and moving forward that I, you know, 10 years ago, absolutely not. You know, it's something that you're not, it's not a quick fix. And that's also a difficult concept and conversation to have. Like you can't just be better. And it's not fair to put yourself in that situation. Well, I should be fine. Like, well, says who? (laughs) And it goes back to that should. Who says that? Like, who's this they, you know? Right. Right. You know, you're talking about fixing things. And I actually did look at your your hobbies. And I did see that you said some of your hobbies include um, DIYing, 
I do. And synchronized swimming. <laughs> yeah. I, Even I, with I, knees? Before the knees. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was a competitive synchronized swimmer for close to 25 years. Um, so, I, wow. yeah, awesome. Um, I started when I was 12 or thir- 13, eighth grade. And University of Rhode Island didn't have a team, so I started one. Um, and then we moved to Canada and they had a master's team. And I was like, yeah. So I swam up there. And then there's a team in right in the town next to us, uh, Phoenixville. And I coached with them and then competed a little bit. Um, I used to be really good, not not phenomenal, but I had a lot of fun. Um, and it's, you know, being in the water, it's a much safer place for, for me to be. <laughs> Um, but yeah, knee surgery makes it a little bit challenging. I can still do some sculling and the vertical figures, but the egg beatering and stuff, not so much, but I still love watching it and I torture my kids and make them try to do a ballet leg every once in a while. Um, my kids are both avid swimmers, but neither of them want to do synchro and that's as it should be. That was mommy's thing, not theirs. So, uh, my daughter's a phenomenal speed swimmer. She is fast. I had that one thing for, with her, Kim, one thing. I was still like faster than her and I lost it last year, lost <laughs> so, it. which is as right. it, you know, it, was, it was really fun to see her break her own personal record. It was awesome. So, yeah. uh, it's a great sport and I will argue anyone that says it's not, um, no, it's, absolutely. it's really, really, really fun. Uh, UPenn has a team actually. So yeah. yeah. So that was the, the one hobby. And then DIYing is really kind of veterinary minded. Um, figured out through various tutorials how to make my own CPR mannequins and constituent body parts. So reusable vessels, urinary bladders, all to be, you know, on the EVT site. <laughs> so um, it's, it's, well, you know, learning on a live patient is part of what we have to do. Absolutely. But when you're really green and really nervous, I don't really want you poking vital organs. So if I can create a model that feels real, looks real, but isn't, it takes the nerves out of it. It gives you that muscle memory that you're a lot more confident when you go into it. So that's what we've been developing is how can we make these didactic training models? So fortunately, I've had some uh, stuffies at my disposal that are now EV team members. <laughs> um, yeah, Ebony's looking really good. And so is um, uh, Jovi. She's our bulldog. So, um, you, well, I mean, brachycephalic CPR is no joke. So, no, I, I know. Yeah. I know. So, hey, I can make you a temp trach. It is really quite fun. So, and it's all of it comes to from the other side of who I am and Caitlin and I are, is we're very environmentally conscious. So you can make these things with stuff that you're going to throw out and practice anyway. Let me show you how to do it. And that's another thing too. If you've, you know, meeting all of our, our vet tech crew and assistants, how artistic are most of them? How creative are they? Mm-hmm. So, hey, you're really good at building and crafting and things. Let me show you how to do this. And then you teach everybody else. So that's the other part of what we're looking to do is like, hey, I can DIY this. Now I'm going to show you how to do it yourself. Now show everybody else. Yeah. They're empowered. The team's empowered. The practice thrives. Boom. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's what I'm thinking. The empowerment that comes from that is enormous. Yes, because you've done it. Like you've taken junk and made it into gems. Yeah. I don't want to stop chatting. Can we just keep going? I would love that. Let's make another date. We can have a virtual coffee or, or wine, depending on the time of day. <laughs> <laughs> because we are out of time, unfortunately. 
and time flies. <laughs> it really does, right? Yeah. But you, Alyssa, you're such an inspiration. Oh, thank lovely. you so much. I know. I'm really just excited to get this message out there and have everyone have those aha moments. Yeah. Yep. Wonderful. Well, thank you again. Thank you. This wraps up another episode of Scrub Chat, a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. Please remember to visit VetVance at www.vetvance.com and check out Zoetta's Commitment to Veterinarians on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to get more information about life issues such as handling student debt, reducing stress, communication skills, and reputation management. VetVance is also available as a mobile app on both Apple and Android devices. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email at scrubchat at zoetis.com. We'd love to hear from you. And please don't forget to share and review this podcast so we can produce more in the future. We are grateful to Zoetis for the support. Until next time, I'm Dr. Kim Farina, and this is Scrub Chat.